uh, a number of years ago now, there was a man who had been an astronaut who took over as the CEO of an airline in the United States. And uh, as part of his beginning phases of his job as CEO, he decided that he would just kind of take a tour of the company and get an idea of what was going on at various places. And on one particular day, he was on one of those tours, and one of the guys who was kind of been there a while, and one of the mucky mucks there was walking him around. They walked into an office to find a gentleman, an employee of the company, sitting in a chair with his feet propped up on the desk. He obviously didn't know that the CEO was walking in because he didn't do anything about it. He just sat there. And uh, so introductions were made, and they talked a little bit. Well, in the process of the introductions and the discussion that occurred, the phone on the desk there that he had his feet propped up on started to ring. And he did nothing to answer it. Matter of fact, he just kind of ignored it. And it was enough of an issue that it distracted the CEO. And he kept looking at the phone and looking back at the guy and looking at the phone and looking back at the guy. And finally the phone stopped ringing. At which point the CEO, the new CEO, looking at this guy sitting at the desk said, uh, Why didn't you answer that phone? He says, Not my job. And he said, excuse me? And he said, I, uh, I'm not in the phone answering part of this business. I'm in maintenance. And the CEO said, not anymore, you're not. And fired him because he didn't get his purpose right, which is dealing with people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Take your Bibles and go there. We're in another step in our look at our purpose as a church and our purpose as individual Christians. And what I want us to get from that little opening introduction is that uh, it's very possible that we have missed a primary part of what we're about. We can have jobs in the church and churches can have uh, slices of life that we uh, do in a particular committed uh, community. But if we get our basic fundamental purpose wrong, then we're going to answer to God for that. Purpose Number three, today we're actually at this point of our purpose that says, I think we have it here in our constitution, our purpose is that we are to evangelize the lost. Now, you see on the screen the title of the sermon today. Now, in case you are not aware of it, I'll clue you in on what happens. Usually about the middle of the week, one of the men in our church comes down and he takes the sermon title for the coming Sunday and he puts it out here on our sign. Now, the idea in doing that as people drive by, they can see what the title is. And maybe if we craft it right, there's something in them that goes, you know, that's an interesting thought. And at least it gets people thinking along those lines enough to maybe say, you know what, I think I'll drop in there Sunday and see what they're going to talk about. And so I swallowed hard, and I almost totally rebelled this week uh, in the title of this sermon, knowing that it was going to go out there on our sign. And the reason for that is because this word evangelist or evangelism in the mouth of modern church members tastes dirty, nasty, like, I don't like the connotations of that. Now, I know that I've already said enough here to make some of you sit out there and go, some of you are going, you're right, I don't like this topic at all. I wish I hadn't come to church today. Others are going, okay, preacher, you're taking a hard stand already. Let's see you substantiate what you're saying. 
We come to this passage today. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you're there by now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to, um, to look at this together. Paul says something to us here that relates to the way we should see this whole thing about this point of our purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 17. And Paul says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's a lot of stuff in that that I want us to come back to. We're going to be in verse 17 in just a few minutes. But before we get there, there's something that I think that we need to do. We need to clarify the terminology as we get into it. You know, as I've been saying, our purpose and those five points of purpose that we have adopted each begin with a need to help us remember what they are. We come to the one called evangelism and immediately people make a leap into what that means and what that looks like. And my belief, in fact, it's a conviction for me that drives me in a lot of how I do what I do, is that we as church people have missed this point so badly that we've had to come back and prop up systems that we've created because we get it wrong in the first place. Hear this. Evangelism, in a biblical way, is best done in the marketplace of your life. I'm going to come back to that, but that's the point that I think we have fundamentally missed in churches, at least during my lifetime. And we've propped up these systems and we've had revival meetings and the idea is you go out and get all your lost friends and bring them to church for two weeks or one week or then we shorten it down to three days. And the idea is you bring them in and the hired gun for God is going to get them saved. Well, I'm not so sure... That's as biblical as we think it is. So what I want to do as we begin this message today is clarify a little bit of terminology. Here's the first thing we need to get. Evangelism is more than just delivering information. See, here's where I'm coming from. Historically, what I've witnessed in churches, and I guess I've witnessed to the point because I've been part of this whole way of doing it, is that we have approached evangelism as if it is, um, well, the best way for me to say it, I think, is it's kind of like an attorney and a trial. Let's say somebody's going on trial for murder, and one side of that thing is the prosecutor, and so they have a lead attorney, and his whole responsibility is to prove the guilt of this person so that he can be convicted and go to hell, uh, excuse me, go, excuse me, go to prison. Same difference. The other side is for the defense, an attorney, to take the information that he has and so present his case that the person can be acquitted and go free. But you see, the real issue in that whole scenario is the jury. 
And so both attorneys come at it in such a way, even from the time that they start picking the jury, they're looking at it and saying, who can I get and how can I present my case in such a way that I can get the verdict that I desire here? And everything they do is crafted to get the decision. I'll submit to you, that's the picture that modern Christianity has defaulted to, by and large, when it comes to this idea of evangelism. It is me taking the information that I have and going to an individual and so presenting it to them that they get to the decision that I want them to make. I know this firsthand because, first of all, I was part of those groups a long time ago called Lay Witness Training. And then it was Lay Renewal Weekends. And then it was CWT, which is the way Baptists stole evangelism explosion. It's, a, it's evangelism, uh, evangelism training like Roman Road Witnessing and all of those kind of things. And we tried out all of these programs that we put together, faith and all of those things. And we tried them out and say, we will teach you what to say to get the verdict that we want. And even to the point that we would take a particular night of the week in churches I grew up in, at least potentially so, uh, and we would say, okay, on this particular night, we're going to go out and we're going to give you a list of people and you go knock on their door, doesn't matter what they're doing, doesn't matter what's going on in their life, and you get the verdict and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Now, that's not all bad, but it's not all good either. It is that approach that says, I'm going to present my case and get the decision that I want. One of the things that's wrong with that is that it doesn't connect with people at the point that they happen to be living. And sometimes it scares people. Now, this is one of, I know this is not a popular message. I get that, okay? But it's one of those things that I think is, we've, we've missed it so badly and we filled our churches full of people with decisions that are very shallow. That the point is that we have to go to these God squad kind of groups to get the job done because we can't get it done. So but when we start talking about evangelism, let's make sure we get the right thing in the right place. This is not about just sharing information and winning the verdict. We scare people when we come at them with information that they never asked for. For instance, true story, Methodist pastor, I believe he was from England, years ago, back in the old days when you could go into the barbershop and get a shave. Now I was at the Woodlands Mall yesterday and my son who lives in Conroe took me in there and he said, this particular place uh, sells stuff for men shaving stuff. Yeah, they do. You could get a brush and some soap and some aftershave and some pre-shave all for the small price of $210. Thank you, I'll go to the dollar store and get whatever. Back in the old days, you could go into a, shaving, a barber shop and sit down. The guy would lather you up and he'd shave you with a straight razor, right? It's in those days that this story occurs. Methodist church, a pastor told about a guy in his church who was on fire for God. Always ready to share a witness. The problem was that this guy, who happened to be a barber, was a little bit eccentric. Now, eccentric is a layman's definition for mentally off. All right? He wasn't all there. 
But he had this passion for God, and the preacher was talking about you need to share your faith with people, so he did. It's one particular instance, because he didn't totally connect with people the way he needed to. He got a guy in his chair, lathered him up, and walked up with a straight razor and said, Are you ready to meet God? The guy jumped up out of the chair and ran out the door, never to come back. And I don't blame him. Now, let me tell you, that is the response of many lost people to the way many Christians come at them with the gospel. I'm intrigued with a quote by Donald Miller, wrote Blue Like Jazz, and some of you might be familiar with that particular book. But he was talking honestly about some of his evangelistic misgivings early on in his Christian life. And here's what he said. I could not in good conscience tell a friend about a faith that did not excite me. I couldn't share something that I wasn't experiencing. And I wasn't experiencing Christianity. It didn't do anything for me at all. It was like math. Sorry, math teachers. Like a system of rights and wrongs and political beliefs, but it wasn't mysterious. It wasn't God reaching out of heaven to do wonderful things in my life. And if I would have shared Christianity with somebody, it would have felt mostly like I was trying to get somebody to agree with me rather than meet God. I'm afraid that that's the testimony of millions of Christians in America today. I made a decision, a conscious choice, and it stopped there. They told me that if I said yes to this and if I recited this prayer, I could avoid going to hell. So I said yes. But you want me to go tell somebody else about that? I don't know what to say. Well, we'll teach you what to say. So I say the right things, but they're empty and they're hollow. I'll tell you something, the world that's out beyond our doors, they don't want any more religion. They got all the religion that this world can muster, and it leaves you dry in the end. We don't need to share information with people. We need, according to the way our uh, vision statement reads there on the front of your bulletin, we need to share life with people. There's all the difference in the world from sharing something that I learned in a classroom and sharing something that makes a difference in my life. So before we even get to that job for us as a church, let's make sure we're getting that job for us as individuals right. It's more than just delivering information. Did you notice in this passage four different times in two verses? One word is used in a couple of different ways. Now, what I want you to see from that in your ongoing Bible study, just on a personal basis, if you're apt to uh, approach Bible study without any of those side references that help you, and you just want to read Scripture and let God speak to you, here's a tool for you to use. When you come across a short period, uh, a passage of text, and a single word is used multiple times, pay attention to that. Because the writer is trying to say something to us to get it. And here Paul uses the word reconcile four different times in two verses. Go back with me. Let's look at this and pull it apart just a little bit. 
Verse 17, once again, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, that's the first place, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the second place. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, that's three, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Four times talking about reconciliation. Maybe that's important enough for us to get what he means by that. It is a wonderful picture for us about what our salvation is. And by the way, he adds the task to it. Verse 20 helps us with that when he uses the word ambassadors. It's not only the nature of our own salvation, it's the nature of the task that he has given to us. This idea of reconciliation. The word picture for us comes alive when we understand the word itself. Now, when I was, well, many of you since I've moved here have asked me, uh, because you live for 20 years down in South Texas, deep South Texas, 15 miles from the Rio Grande River, uh, did you learn Spanish? And the answer is a little bit. Um, no, <laughs> but a little bit. And the way I learned a little bit is I tried to kind of absorb it from the culture around me. I never went to a Spanish class where you sit down and they teach you this stuff. One of the reasons I didn't, because the people that were in our church, like particularly high school students who took Spanish at school, they spoke Spanish, but they went to Spanish class and made F all the time. I thought, I'm not going to go sit in a class and learn how not to speak Spanish. So I started just listening to life around me. Now, at the time we got there, our children were young, playing soccer. And I was her coach. And so I began to learn some things about Spanish from my kids in the soccer field. For instance, I learned the word cambio. Now, those of you who speak Spanish know exactly what that means. Now, I thought I learned it early. Here's the way I learned it. Okay, uh, When, as a soccer coach, when your team is getting drilled on the field, you try to change kids out. You know, the ones who are really not helping you much, you pull them out and you put in another kid that you should have put in in the first place. Unless you play for a team where everybody gets to play, then you just have to keep moving them in and out, which was the case for us. And so I started listening. I would yell at the referee, sub, sub. Sorry about yelling at you here. Sub, which means substitute. Referees never paid attention to me. That's kind of like preaching. It wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't bother me too much. But my assistant coach next to me, instead of yelling sub, would yell out, cambio. Referee, as soon as he could, would stop the game and he'd wave at us and do like this, bring them in. And I was going, what's up with that? So I started yelling cambio and they would stop the game and wave them in. So I decided cambio, by the way, the referees came from Mexico across the river every day to do the, the referee. And so they spoke Spanish and only Spanish. So I deduced from that that cambio means sub. And then we would start going into Mexico. Okay, to go shopping and that kind of thing. Don't do that anymore, but uh, we used to do it back in those days. And so as we're going down to the river, and just that last mile or so before you get to the river and the crossing there into Mexico, it's lined with these businesses, and across the top, Casa de Cambio. And I put it together. I knew what Casa was. It's house. If it's not, don't tell me, okay, because I'm 20 years into believing Casa means house. House of cambio. House of substitution. Wrong. 
And so what I finally discovered was, cambio means exchange. A casa de cambio is a place where you're going into Mexico or coming out of Mexico. You have one kind of of, uh, money you want to change over for the kind of the country where you're going. That is an exchange. It's not just a substitution. There is an exchange that occurs there, a transfer of value, etc. Spanish lesson done for the day. Aren't you glad that's over with? But I go through all of that because the word here, reconcile, means exchange. Now, when I approach it in English and I see reconciliation, I think of what I do every month with my bank account. All right? Now, some of you are going, you're supposed to reconcile your bank account? Yes, you are. If you don't, you're going to be sorry sooner or later. Okay? That's the way I think about it. The word reconcile to me means, okay, I take this and I check it off. Yes, that check is cleared and that one they got the right amount, etc. And you just go through and you check them off. That's not what the word means here. Paul, four times, two verses, uses the word that means exchange. So let's read part of that again, verse 18. All, uh, excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ exchanges us. Well, that's an interesting way to read it. Exchange us to himself and gave us the ministry of exchange. Now, aren't you glad I cleared that up for you? Well, let's dig on it a little bit more, show you what I'm talking about. In the sense that Paul's using it here, salvation, coming to Jesus Christ, is an exchange. And the exchange, according to the way he writes this, extends into our purpose. He's given us the ministry of exchange. So what does he mean by that? So now we're back to 17, the first word of verse 17. What is that word? Therefore, good piece of Bible study help here. When you come across the word therefore in Scripture, you stop and you ask yourself, what's it there for? It is a conclusionary, building upon kind of a statement. He's looking backwards, saying, based on what I said here, this is what I say now. All right? So here's the whole deal. When we come to this idea of salvation and the exchange that it is, and the ministry of exchange, the question is, what do you have to offer in evangelism? Now, that, that's important. What do you have to offer in evangelism? Paul helps us with that. Therefore, now scholars are split. Is he referring back to verse 16 or verse 15? I say verse 15, so let me read that for you. Here's what he says. And he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know what that says? That Jesus died for us and the exchange that occurs is my life is no longer mine to live for me. The exchange then, verse 17, therefore, is that when I come to Christ and I make that decision, my old life is gone. And my new life is wrapped up in Him. That's verse 17 and 18. Therefore... Based on that that was, and now it's, it's his. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or creature. Either way, same difference. The old has passed away, the new has come. What he's saying with verse 15 is that my life now is totally his. 
not mine. The idea is that Jesus exchanged for me that part of me who I was, marked by sin, marked by selfishness, marked by control orientation, marked by behaviors that didn't honor him. And now, because of what he's done, the exchange is, I have his life that is mine. Let me tell you, let me stop and just say this as directly as I can say. One of the reasons that the people outside of the church are not interested in what goes on in the church and the message that we have is because they see us live. Mahatma Gandhi, one of the greatest figures politically of the 20th century, once said, I would come to Christ except I've known too many Christians. There's an exchange. Reconciliation is a, an exchange, the old for the new. That's Paul's whole point as he goes through this. We cannot be who we used to be because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we come again, verse 17, to this phrase, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Now that's hard for us to envision sometime because it's one of those things that, maybe say it this way, we're encapsulated in Christ. If any man is encapsulated, okay, that doesn't help, so let's try this. When I was in high school, I had the best job on the planet for a high school boy. I worked at the pet shop at the mall. Now, you know why that's the best job for a high school boy? Because all the girls love to go to the mall, and they always go to the pet shop because they love the dogs that are there. So I had the perfect job for meeting girls. That's not where I met Teresa. That's a whole other story, okay? But that was a perfect job for me at that time. Now, one of the things that was not so perfect about that job was the fact that I had to take care of about 40 freshwater fish tanks and five saltwater fish tanks. Now, I'll never in my life will I own a fish tank after that, Okay? Yeah, I know that it's pretty enough to go in and see one. It's all in that pretty look, especially the saltwater thing. Look at those pretty fish, you know, all those colors and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, it's a hassle to deal with one, much less 40 of them. But I want you to take that idea of a fish in a tank. The reality is for that fish, his whole world is inside of that tank. It's not even feasible for a fish to think, I should be in that tank over there. Or, I demand, this is the teenage fish problem we always had, I demand my freedom. And every once in a while we'd walk in and a fish had jumped out and was laying on the floor, dried up, and way yonder dead. Their whole lives inside the four glass panels of an aquarium. That's the word picture in Christ. Now here's what I want you to see from that. The idea here, the way Paul writes that, is that when we are in Christ, our whole lives are surrounded by who He is. Our whole existence is locked up in who He is. But here's where the exchange comes in. Because that old part of us, with those attitudes, 
You know the attitudes I'm talking about? They come out while you're driving. Now, I gotta tell you, we went and spent the last few days uh, in Houston with our kids. All of our kids, some of them flew up and some of them drive over. And we met over there. We went to the Astros games. Oh my goodness. That was, I should have been sleeping instead of watching that garbage. <clears throat> but to get to the Astros game, we had to drive through five o'clock traffic in Houston from the woodlands into downtown Houston. Oh man, beat me with a stick instead of that, please. I have to tell you, I'm just being honest, okay? I get all kinds of attitude when I get in driving situations like that, okay? I understand those Old Testament prophecies, you know, where we talk about God just wiping us off the face of the planet. I get it in traffic like that. But see, that's an attitude that when I take that, by the way, it's driven by controlling attitude. It's driven by no patience. It's driven by demeaning other people. Those attitudes that are part of that, when I pull those over into the life of Christ, they don't fit. That's one of the reasons we find in Scripture for the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Okay, I can deal with that one. Joy, as long as I'm not in traffic. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Help me out. Love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, apparently Paul never drove in traffic. And then what else? Kindness. Apparently Paul lived the life of a monk and never was around anybody. Gentleness, self-control, that's one I hate the most of the fruit of the Spirit. All of the things that drive us in our sinful lives, when we are exchanged with Christ, uh, with the life that he gives us, it pulls us over for if a man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All of those things now don't fit. And that's the exchange that occurs. And that's a lifelong process for us. So, so now we're into this theological discussion. When do you get saved? And there is that truth that says at the point of justification, you make a decision for Christ and you become his child. But then there's that sanctification process, that lifelong thing in Christ, pulling out the things that are not belonging with Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, it's an exchange. So here's how that fits us when it comes to evangelism. Well, maybe before I do that, let me just stop and ask you. How are you in that process today? This exchange that we're talking about, does it describe for you what happened when you accepted Christ as your Savior? That you realized immediately everything's different now. I'm not my own, verse 15. Now I'm Him. I'm in Him. And so those things that are part of my life that I pull over that are not part of him, i got to get rid of those things. Does that describe you today? That's one of the reasons, this in mind, that I asked you at the beginning when I said, do you really believe that he's mighty to save and that he loves us and all that? And we all of us jump and say, yeah, let's go with that. But there are people in your life who desperately need us to believe that enough to share it with them. But if our lives are not being exchanged in that ongoing process, we go with them with that jury approach and we try to get them to believe our side and they see us and they say, I don't think so. 
And so there's a breakdown there. The old has passed away. The new has come. Is that true? In the way I'm living my life and you, yours? (laughs) I'm struck with uh, this idea of being a witness. I preached a sermon kind of like this a number of years ago. In our church was an attorney. He was the most intellectually intimidating guy I'd ever been around. As a rule, I'm not too intimidated by people. Okay, you're just a person just like I am. Sure, you can squash me. I'm good with that. It's all right. I don't have to be afraid of you. This guy intellectually intimidated me. I'd start talking and I'd start second guessing everything I was saying because I knew he was over there, you know, this smart Harvard educated attorney. And, and I'm sure he was thinking, you're just an idiot. But he never said that. I just decided that was the case. And so in this one particular message, I was preaching a message kind of like this of what it means to be a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Not you should be, but you will be my witnesses. That's Jesus saying that. So I was talking about this idea of witness. He wrote me this letter. I found it this week and I was reading through it. Here's essentially what he said. He went through this long legalese explanation of what a witness is and how it works in the court of law and all that kind of stuff. So let me put it down on the bottom shelf for us. If there is a wreck that occurs and there is a trial then that says, okay, we're going to determine who is at fault here. If you say to an attorney who interviews you, I was three blocks away and my cousin told me what he heard because he was two blocks away. And so here's what happened based on my second hand thinking what I heard might have happened. You're not going to get asked to go to the stand in that trial. Okay? You are not a credible witness. However, if you're standing on the street corner and you're watching traffic as it goes by and you see the whole thing happen and you can explain in great detail what car A was doing, what car B was doing, who did what, when it happened, an attorney who finds out about that trying to win their case is going to put you on the witness stand and say, tell us what you saw and experienced. So back to the screens. What do you have to offer? One of the reasons that our evangelism has been so anemic in the 21st century church is because we're not telling what we experience. We tell what we've been taught. So what do you bring to the testifying part of this? The wrong part of it, as I said a while ago, is that when we're just sharing information, people get that and they don't want that. So let's come to this basic truth. The world sees through us. And if it's not credible, they're not interested. Favorite Billy Graham story told by Billy Graham himself years ago. Billy Graham was in a town, and he was doing a series of revival meetings there, and uh, he needed to mail some stuff, and so he went walking down into this area of town where he was told that the post office was, and he couldn't find it, so he stopped this boy who was walking on the street. Excuse me, sir, I'm trying to find the post office. Could you tell me where the post office is? The little boy said, sure, and he pointed it out to him, and he sent him that way, and as they were about to part, Billy Graham said he turned to the little boy, and he said, hey, I'm going to be over here in such and such a church tonight, 
telling people how to get to heaven, I'd love for you to come and I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy looked at him and he said, I don't think so. You don't even know where the post office is. How do you know where heaven is? (laughs) And that's what we need to see about the people around us. We can go with them and tell them, man, this Christian life, you don't want to go to hell. You don't. But give me a reason beyond what I see in your life to want to be identified with Christ. Because the fact of the matter is some of the most acidic, poisonous speech that occurs in this world comes out of the mouth of Christians. And the world sees that. And the world says... Your words about a God of love don't match your actions. No thanks. Maybe a change is needed in our whole perspective. Brian McLaren says this. Maybe it's time that we stop counting conversions and start counting conversations with people. I, I kind of like that. Because when we count the conversions, it's just another notch on our spiritual belt when somebody accepts Christ. The conversation involves investing in them and let them see the exchange that has occurred in us. And it draws them to Christ. Great story. Told by a youth minister. You would know who he was if I told you, so I'll just say this. He was a youth minister. He was having a lock-in. Now, I learned as a, as a youth minister that lock-ins are really demon-possessed activities. And uh, so I never tried to do them after a while. Um, but in this particular case, he had decided to have one. And, uh, you know, it's planned out. They were going to do games and food and stuff for a while. And then about midnight, they were going to do this worship service thing with their teenagers. And so in the game part of it, this youth minister and one of his buddies who came in for that deal were playing ping-pong. And it was life and death. The world rises and falls on who wins this ping pong game. You know what kind I'm talking about? They're competitive to the nth degree. And they're into this game and kids are grabbing around because it's heated and they're both sweating and slamming it and blocking it and, and all that kind of stuff. And so this crowd draws around and they get to the critical point of the game and there's just a couple of, either, you know, a couple of points uh, and one of the guys is about to win, and so they're so into it, and so this guy just slams it deep into the corner, and it goes over to the corner of the room, and now he only needs a point or two to win, and so the intensity is so tight you could cut it there, and about the time that he slams it like that, this junior high girl, <clears throat> who nobody liked, because she was always causing trouble trying to be the center of attention, In that charged instance, she ran over to the corner, grabbed that ping pong ball, and took off running down the hall. Now, the youth minister, the competitive, the whole world is riding on this game youth minister, said his first thought was, I'm going to kill her. And his second thought was, and I'm going to do it slowly. And he's mad. I mean, like that mad. And so she's running down the hall, I got it, I got it, you know, had, you know, just making a big, and so he's, you know, he starts off like, like, I mean, starts after her, 
And as he's making his way out the door into the hallway and she's running down, I got the ball. He says God started getting to him. And that patience thing that I talked about, fruit of the Spirit, right? And the gentleness thing. And he says, I tried as best I could to push those out of my mind because this girl needed justice. (laughs) As he's making his way down the hall to her, the Holy Spirit's working on him. And he decided before he got to her, this is just a game. It's not that big of a deal. Especially when this girl has to endure being hacked on by people all the time because of how she acts. And so he got down there and then he made a game of it with her. Oh, you got it. You, you know, and so a big, big deal. Finally, she gave it up and, you know, they went and finished the game. Later that evening during the worship time, The guy who was doing the teaching said, now, you need Jesus in your life. And he'll change your life and he'll make you different. And if you want that, then just come on up here and let's talk about it. The youth minister said he watched as that girl got up. No crying, no emotion, just got up and made her way down front. And one of his women sponsors started counseling her. She made a decision to follow Christ that night after that the lady sponsor went over to him and he said that's great he said she said no you don't understand she said let me tell you what she told me she said when i took that ping pong ball earlier tonight she said i do that stuff all the time just to get attention because people don't like me and i just want to have somebody like me She said, but you know, the way brother so-and-so handled that was different. And where everybody else yells at me and slaps me around, he didn't do that to me. And I decided that whatever he's got, I want. Sure, we can go around and we can slap people in the head with our Bibles and tell them you need to turn or burn. But what they need is a reason to believe. Paul hammers that in this passage. The exchange, the reconciliation, the old life for the new bleeds out of us. And then he says in verse 20, you are ambassadors for Christ. A person who lives in another country representing the interests of his own country, but yet he is surrounded by the culture of that country and has to talk their language and eat their food and rub shoulders with them and live there, but he's always about trying to further his country. That's Paul's picture of us. Let's stop opting for the safe option that says, I'm going to take my friends to church so the preacher can tell them about Jesus. And let's do the hard work of living with them and investing ourselves in them and growing with them. So here's the last thing I want you to get. You've heard it before. I want to make sure you get it. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need life. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't really know anybody in my circle who doesn't know Jesus. Well, shame on you. Because the whole plan of God is to place us in circles of people who need life. 
That's where evangelism occurs. Yeah, we can do it from the church. We can send people out on Monday night. But the best place, the biblical model, is for you to take him when you go into the marketplace of life. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need life. So share it. By all means, share it. Let's pray. So the question of the hour is, first, do you have that life? Is it possible that you came in here today and for the first time you recognize this is a picture of a loving God that I have no idea about before today? You're here and you don't know Jesus Christ and the life that he offers to you. You've never been exchanged the way Paul's talked about it here. Today's the day for you. That same Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you life. Bring all of your troubles and all of your sorrows and all of your struggles and I'll walk through life with you with those things and change you. Yeah, there's eternity with him there, but there's life with him today also. So if you don't know Jesus, now is your opportunity. Now is your invitation. You come. Just get up, make your way up here, and we'll talk with you and pray with you, counsel with you. We'll have the conversation. My suspicion is that most of us here, many of us for sure, have made that decision. And if that's the case, then you're the one who is the one with the ministry of reconciliation. How long has it been since you talked to somebody about Jesus Christ? Not for the conversion, but just because you care about them. It's not about being trained. It's about your experience. Who is it in your circle who needs life and what are you doing about it? I invite you today to make a commitment to be intentional with people in your circles about Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing. You come if there's a decision we can pray with you about and counsel.